0: Welcome to another episode of Conduct Detrimental. Dan Lust joined this week by Justin Mader. What's up, Justin?
1: How are we doing today, Dan?
0: Uh, your boy, your boy is battling a little bit of a fever here. A little bit of a fever. People are like, oh, you must be doing okay. This is my wife. Are hey, you going on court TV, going on and crime? You must be feeling good. I'm like, no. It's the Michael Jordan flu game here. Um, but we're making it through. I was debating. I'm Like, is this going to be the week we don't put a podcast out? And I'm like, no, show must go on. We are here. Uh, So, yeah, I've been better, but sports law doesn't take a holiday, so we cannot either, Justin.
1: Yeah, it sounds good. I mean, it's just like, yeah, fevers come, fevers go. But, you know, you got to get that rest. But in the end, just keep on keeping on, and it'll pass, and it'll be good to go. There's a friend of mine
0: uh, in college that used to say, "Sleep when you're dead," and that was his expression. <laughs> He's like, "I'm gonna work, work, work. I'll sleep when I'm dead." Um, I I am a uh, I'll say I'm I'm somewhat nocturnal. I don't really sleep, and as I when I was younger I could get away with it, but it's much harder, much harder now. Um, okay, enough with the sob story. On to business. This week we have a story that has transcended. sports law world and it's just really in pop culture that is the story of michael Orr, the protagonist the man who uh, the blind side was written about you have a very interesting legal petition that's out we're going to talk about all sides of that we've had a a couple updates in the in the couple days since the story's been out the twoies have responded they put out a statement they put out a statement on top of it i want to do something with the conservatorship we'll get into it but uh that's our, our lead story this week justin we have you on in particular kind of talk about the fallout and some additional public information that have come out on the uh, Penn gaming ESPN bet deal. I think what we recorded, the story had just come out. So we want to kind of um, finish that story up. Uh, and then at some point here, we'll see if uh, if it's true to form, but Mike Lawson will, I think will join us for the next part of this episode. We want to talk about uh, Wander Franco, the Tampa Bay Rays player who might not be playing major league baseball ever again. Uh, some, Kind of weird allegations of a uh, sexual nature, we'll say of an underage nature. So people can uh, hear that if they have not been following along. Um, no NIL hour episode this week, as far as I know. So I want to give people an update on conference realignment, what's going on in the collective uh, angle. And then uh, our old buddy, James Harden, we covered him a lot as he, uh, quote unquote, put on the fat suit to get out of Houston. i uh, getting some whispers that James Harden's going to be making the, the Sports Law Hall of Fame. Hall of Shame once again. Um, okay, Justin, let's start with Michael Orr. Um, I have the background here, but I, I want to get your early thoughts on this. So, what's your familiarity with Michael Michael Orr in general? Just, just um, high level stuff.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've se- I saw the movie uh, back, I believe, when it first came out, or you know, when it hit, you know, DVDs when that was a thing, uh, and so. I had seen the movie and heard about it and had done a little bit. I was a little bit younger when the movie came out. So I wasn't at the point where I am now where anytime there's a sports controversy or a sports story, I tend to dig deeper into it now. But with Michael Orr, I was always, you know, under the impression that this story was sort of one of the, you know, triumphs, one of the happy stories in sports where you had a, you know, a child who was sort of, Uh, in a less fortunate state and a family who was willing to, you know, use their resources. And again, in the movie kind of uh, use their charisma from the mom's perspective to sort of get him to the position he was in to show his true talent on the football field, which was never in doubt. Um, And of course that transcended into real life with his talent um, going to uh, Ole Miss and, you know, eventually the NFL. So, I always thought this was a happy story, but from what we've seen that's come out recently, apparently that's just not the case. Uh, That's a good summation. So people haven't, I mean, I imagine that movie grossed, I think, $300
0: at the box office. Sandra Bullock won an Oscar. It was nominated for Best Picture. So I'm sure people have at least heard of it. Um, Michael Lewis, the author of Moneyball, was the one behind The Blind Side the Book that came out, I believe, in 2006. Uh, And the movie came out in 2009 little bit of background, Michael Orr, If people remember The Blind Side, the movie ends with Michael Orr getting drafted by the Baltimore Ravens at the back half of the first round. So movie comes out in 2009, Michael Orr's drafted in 2009. Pretty, I think it's important to the story. So um, I, I think you did a good history here. The, the only, the part just for kind of summary of the movie, I think this is important. Um, there is an allegation in, in the movie, it's put into a plot of the movie, that the Tui family, and some of the stuff is now coming out in the next couple of days, the Tui family were, were very well off. The dad of the Tui family, I, I, I think according to the lawyer in some recent statement, at some point sold his business for $220 million. Tui family is well off. They're doing okay. Um, one of the, I, I, you know, if memory serves, and I haven't watched the movie recently, but they go to school with Michael Orr. The kids go to school with Michael Orr and they see Michael Orr in a, allegedly this really dramatic scene. They see him walking in the rain, Driving home, he's wearing a shirt and like a t-shirt and shorts. And Sandra Bullock's just like, "Get in the car right now!" So, in some world that might be viewed as kidnapping, might be, might be. But here, it's dressed up. It's very nice. And and I think uh, you know, I'm just joking. My, Michael Orr has has generally commended the Twoies. He said there's a lot of people that have helped him in his life. The Twoies are one of them. The the movie just really made it seem like the Twoies picked me up from. Uh, I was absolutely nothing. I was a complete idiot. I couldn't read. I couldn't write. And they taught me everything I knew. And and what Michael Orr has been saying in interviews in the past couple of days, like, it's not really true. I was able to get myself from point A to point B. And I was, you know, I was the star of plays. I made, you know, I made the Dean's list at Ole Miss. Like, I wasn't really an idiot. Um, And what he's saying is that the characterization of Michael Orr in the book, in the movie, kind of harmed his career prospects because people thought he was an idiot, um, which wasn't true. But, you know, that's how the movie, they wanted to make it a, you know, rags to riches type story. So why are we here? I imagine, again, most people have heard of this at this point, but a little bit of background. Michael Orr has filed a uh, a petition in Tennessee. Petition is very interesting. It is not a suit to necessarily say that the movie was fake and not really based on a true story. It is a movie, interestingly, or is it a lawsuit, interestingly, to end a conservatorship over Michael Orr's life. Uh, conservatorship. That's an interesting word. That sounds a lot like the Britney Spears case. Justin, because it is, this is a conservatorship case. And with the conservatorship comes uh, the alleged um, misappropriation or misallocation of funds. And Michael Orr is specifically saying with respect to the movie, this conservatorship resulted in his family getting paid a ton, sister, brother, mom and dad getting a ton of money. He got a big old squadoosh, zero. And the other part of the petition says, yeah, the, my my mom, my dad, my brother, my sister, the Sandra Bullock family, not actually my family. This conservatorship, I thought I was being adopted, and I was not. So they're not my family. Um, but that's where we are. We can, you know, we can fill in the gaps here. But, um, you know, Justin, I'll, I'll leave it to you. First thoughts on, on this filing. I know it took me by surprise.
1: Yeah, it took me by surprise as well. It was one of those things that I saw, you know, again, saw the movie, thought I knew the story, and the adoption seemed to be sort of a focal point. Um, That they were bringing him into the family and come to find out that it was more of like what you said, this conservatorship, which for those who aren't familiar with that term is essentially a, you know, understanding or an appointment of a guardian that will manage either the personal or financial affairs um, and sometimes legal affairs of somebody who isn't capable of handling those things themselves. And so this sort of conservatorship was is been seen by some, of course, we saw with the Britney uh, controversies as a way to like control somebody. Um, but in the law, it's used to try and help the individual that can't really handle those affairs themselves. So it was, you know, a story that seemed to just pop up out of nowhere. But again, as you said, Michael Orr has been going on um, you know, these interviews and talking about this situation and what he wants from it and of course if you saw the filings you would know um, that he's just looking to end this conservatorship as well and i don't know where this is going to go both sides have been kind of you know contradicting the other and there's a lot of issues that aren't resolved so it'll be interesting to see what either happens in court or what inevitably will just get settled out of court and we may never know
0: so let's, let's unpack this a little bit. So this is, you know, we do a little bit of the IRAC method. we tell you what the issues are. You um, know, will give you some analysis here. I guess the, the rule, I guess in podcast world, the rule and the analysis is kind of, kind of blend the boat, we'll try to give you our conclusion to the best that we can. Um, and for those that don't know what an IRAC method is, that's generally how you're supposed to answer a law school essay exam, issue, rule, analysis, conclusion. And then there's some psychos that say c they say conclusion, rule, analysis, conclusion. Those people are psychos, do not trust them. Um, okay. So, yeah, the conservatorship, people know it from the Britney Spears saga, right? Britney Spears, and again, hopefully the stands don't come after me. I said something about uh, Britney Spears and and Wimbiana, and I got some weird replies on social media. So I, you know, I got to be yeah. careful here. I, I, I think for the general public, people can see why, and I'm not saying she deserved to be in a conservatorship. But if you just see what Britney Spears is doing on social media, some of the stuff she posts, it's like, eh. Maybe she's not mentally fit. Maybe. I'm not saying she is. I'm not saying she's not. I'm not saying her family didn't take advantage of her, but you know, there there was something pretty spear shaved her head, went crazy attacked. You know, she was, I think she was checked into a mental health facility. Don't quote me on that, but I'm, I'm, I don't know. I think that's generally the vibe. I have never heard a sniff of anything that Michael Lord has done at all. He's a motivational speaker. He seemed to have a pretty productive NFL career was a Super Bowl winner pro bowler. Um, I don't. I don't quite know what qualified him for a conservatorship. And then you read some of his comments, uh, and it seemed like it seemed as if to say that he was kind of uh, duped into thinking that because of his age, he could not be legally adopted by the Tuies. But he wanted to have some type of legal relationship with them, so he made them his legal conservators. And he was, you know, I, I'm using the word duped. That's essentially what what um, he's saying. But a conservatorship. Is very different than being a, a legal adopter, right? Being a legal adopter has some in, in impacts on a number of levels, maybe like uh wills or probate, right? If you're someone's legal child, that's very different. Being a conservator, that's when you have control over someone's finances. So in the Michael Orr petition, there's an allegation essentially that uh you know the two Wees have told him he need they needed to be as its conservator to help him with like tuition payments and car payments. And I'm like, I don't know, there's tens of thousands of athletes in the country I can't imagine like like maybe a handful have a conservatorship like I don't know just it's not it's just not really heard of so that seems odd um you know but let's talk really here about the financial element so the lawyers for the Tui family and and, um well actually stay here for a second the Tui family this story's been out for about you know a couple days at this point the Tui's have said you know what we're going to end the conservatorship it's not going to exist anymore Um, and there were there seems to be no evidence at least as far as i can tell that the two used the conservatorship to kind of siphon off his nfl money i think the allegations with respect to finances are solely restricted to the movie deal Mm -hmm. part of this movie deal is interesting and the two again i'm not gonna i'm just telling you what's out there i think they gave a kind of a guarded statement like we only got a little bit of money and then the next statement's like well we got you know he got exactly what we got, 100,000. And it's like, you know, so as of right now, we don't have the specifics. They're not opening up their books for everybody to see. But I mentioned books and records and accounting and statements and audit. You can very easily get to the answer of this case. I, I you know, I, I put this answer, I put this out on social media. People are like Dan, you do know that movie audits and movie accounting is very hard to do. And I'm like, not really concerned with how much money the movie made. I'm concerned about how much money the family members made relative to Michael Orr. I think that could be relatively straightforward. Um, You know, that's going to be the heart of this case. That's going to be the heart of whether Michael Orr paid his fair share of of the profits. Why, you know, his siblings might have got X or Y and he didn't get it. So, you know, someone is going to be really right here and someone's going to be really wrong. um, We should say this. I just want to make sure everyone's aware of it. Michael Orr conspicuously, coincidentally, whatever you want to say, it released his second book on the same day that this lawsuit was announced. Um, He also was claiming to not know about this conservatorship until February of 2023. So, you know, does it take six months for a lawsuit to come together? That's somewhat reasonable. Um, I'm not sure how someone doesn't know that they're a legal conservative in 2023. And then some people on social media have pointed out in Michael Orr's first book, he references the conservatorship, so he must have known. So I point everything out here. Um, but that's where we're at. That's where we're at um, as of today. Michael Orr has not responded to the TUI's kind of various comments uh, at this point that the and in the conservatorship, that they're, um, you know, that they were pay- the or was paid his fair amount. That's what we see. That's where we're at a weekend, eye the storm. Everyone's talking about this. Justin, let's get your final thoughts on this, and then, uh, you know, we'll, we'll move on to the next one.
1: Yeah, the only thing I can think of that might make this whole lawsuit make a little bit of sense is that Michael Orr might have known about the conservatorship, but didn't know exactly what all that entailed or how that was affecting him. Good point. Um, that's cause a good that, point. cause that is one thing that I, th- all the time, that's, that's the reason that lawyers exist because people think that they know a term or they think they know what is happening in some sort of legal position that they're in, but they don't fully understand how it, will, you know, affect them uh, either financially or legally to the point where they then realize, oh, I need to get out of this or this needs to change in some way. Um, You know, you see this all the time with contracts, with provisions that people completely just misunderstand. Uh, But in this case, it could just be that the powers that the family had over him, uh, he was just not aware of it. So again, we'll see. It could, uh, could be one of those things that floats under the radar and that settlement happens or it could be something that he keeps going in court, but I guess we'll have to find out. Reminder podcast sponsored by Themis Bar Review,
0: top bar prep company in the galaxy. Use Themis for your bar prep, your MPRE, and really just feeling confident in life. Themis is the best podcast also sponsored by Better Edge, the social betting platform. Ooh, guys, I uh, we might have a scenario where Better Edge I do a partnership with uh, my streaming show, The Sports Better Court. So stay tuned. Uh, there might be some ways to wager on the action of Sports Better Court. Uh, and if you haven't seen Sports Better Court, check us out on YouTube. Okay. Let us uh, move on here. Oh, who is that? Mike Lawson joining the podcast.
2: Mike. What's up, Dan? You ready for this? I'm ready. Dan, what's up? What's up, Justin? How we doing? Mike's a... Mike's a VIP. He's kind
0: of in now. He's got doctor's appointments. He's got golf. we got Mike for very crunch time here. No, no NIL hour episode this week, Mike. Next week. Next week. Next week. I will. I think we'll cover the college. stuff. To see how long we can get you for. Okay. You are a baseball guy. You're probably one of the biggest baseball fans I know. Wander Franco. You are a big Yankees fan. This is an AL East related story. Give everybody the latest on Wander Franco. Uh, and let's assume that people are not familiar with who he is and anything about these allegations.
2: Yeah, so it's, uh, it kind of came out of the blue, and it's shocking to see now a proactive team with, with allegations, right? We, we've seen some teams or even leagues hold off on putting a player on a restricted list or anything like that. So in comes Wander Franco. He is ESPN Top 100 player. He is the star of the Tampa Bay Rays uh, shortstop for the Tampa Bay Rays. Uh, he was, I believe, going into this year maybe the 30th or 31st player on ESPN's top 100. He is their, uh, he's their stud, and he is, you know, supposed to be their franchise player. Well, there are some allegations that came out where he was accused, or he's alleged to have an inappropriate uh, relationship with a minor. Uh, now he is Dominican Republic. This investigation is taking place in the Dominican Republic. These allegations came what's, out. Because what's the of-
0: What's the age of said minor? I think that's relevant to this. 14. It's
2: important. So it came out through social media. There were some social media posts uh, that came out with Wander with this 14-year-old. We don't really know any sort of details. They're kind of holding it close to the vest. I would say the prosecutor in the Dominican Republic is being uh, very uh, close with the information here. However, now news is reporting coming out today out of Sports Illustrated, uh, Associated Press, Bleacher Report, basically saying that this investigation, all indications are showing that Wanda Franco will not return to Major League Baseball, like ever, ever. So there, there, there's definitely more than just the, the, maybe this relationship with the one 14-year-old, um, but it doesn't seem... Uh, uh, the the reports are at least showing that it's not looking good for his future in the Major League Baseball. Um, Major League Baseball is also doing their own investigation. Uh, like I said, the Dominican Republic is is investigating this and prosecuting this. It's being prosecuted under the National Agency for Boys, Girls, Adolescents, and Family and Gender Violence Unit, uh, special prosecutor in the Dominican Republic. Um, it, it's it's very sensitive here and and there's no, you know, no real way of knowing because there's a minor involved. We're not going to know too many details here, but the, the story is he's on the restricted list. He's not returning for at least the rest of the season and potentially for the rest of his career.
0: Um, Just one quick note here. Um, restricted list right now, uh, and I'll see if anything changes. I think the report from ESPN is that he's being paid for the time being. Uh, I think I think his salary is something like two million dollars for the year. So we'll see what they want to do with him. But it's a similar it's a situation. Um, you know, I, again, I don't want to draw comparisons, but um, I think if people know a New York Giant, uh, former New York Giant uh, Lawrence Taylor, another allegation of someone that's with someone of underage, and you know, people can make whatever excuses they want in terms of hey, I didn't know, or and I don't know what this is, Wanda Franco is saying this, but you know I didn't know I was they misrepresented how old they were you know generally and I'm not sure what the law is in you know in Dominican Republic but the United States doesn't really matter right statutory is statutory um someone could tell you that they're underage and or someone could tell you that they're of age but if it turns out legally that they're underage doesn't really matter what what they thought of fake IDs um but here Mike you know and this is why I asked you the age 14 is different you know I don't know. I, I don't want to I don't want to make generalizations, but like 14 is a number that I think has alarmed a lot of people. This is not like a, you know, a one month cutoff or something like that where it's like, oh, maybe. Um, but, yeah, it's it's alarming. And I think the Rays have acted fair fairly quickly. I know some people are upset that, you know, they didn't they didn't act quick enough. But, um, you know, I think that's where we are now.
1: Pretty serious. Uh, pretty serious story out of baseball. Justin, you got anything here? Yeah, I know people had said that they were a little you know, disappointed in the you know speed at which the Rays kind of reacted to this, but at the same time, at first it was just kind of this story that came out. It was a lot of allegations, um, you know, a lot of jokes were being made, which I always hate to see uh, when that sort of scenario is involved. But I think the Tampa Bay Rays sort of took their time. They went through the process of doing the investigation and had found what they had found. And I mean, it's just a story that it it kind of seems that this wouldn't have been found out if it wasn't for the person coming forward. So, you know, we always applaud that. And I just hope that whatever, anything that has happened, you know, can be rectified as much as possible and that, Things like this in the future could just be avoided. Um, but yeah, it seems that the baseball career of uh, you know Franco is it seems to be done. I mean, all reports indicate that he's not coming back, at least to the uh, MLB and Tampa Bay Rays.
2: Yeah, and, and coming from to a franchise where has been on the up and up, Tampa Bay has been a lot better the last couple of years. They were in first place and now currently in second place, only a couple of games behind Baltimore, but by no means that they're not out of the playoffs they are going to be a playoff team. And, you know, he was supposed to be their franchise players, 22 years old. And in 2021, he signed an 11 year, $182 million contract, which is the largest contract in this franchise history for a franchise that has a low budget. They, they don't go after the big name players. And, and a lot of their players are now dropping with injuries and things like that. So this just really hurts the team overall. Obviously it's a, it's a, Horrible story here. And um the uh, more information that comes out, we'll find out what actually happens to to Franco here. But it's a it's a big shot to the the Rays organization uh and the future of their ball club.
0: Okay, I think we can end it there on Wander. Mike, we'll let you out of here. Um okay, so let's go next to the world of college sports. So as we sit here today on August 17th, I think we talked about conference realignment on our last episode. We didn't talk about uh, kind of the latest and not a huge update, but I just want to kind of flag some things for some people. Um, So in this Pac-12 exodus, we still have some sleeping, you know, some sleeping parties here. Oregon State, Washington State are are two. but The big ones that there was some momentum on, it looks like, you know, that might have stalled out, were Cal, Cal Berkeley and Stanford. And, you know, those are two schools of kind of college football royalty, Aaron Rodgers, John Elway, um, you know, those are pretty notable schools. So there was a conversation for those two schools to get picked up by the ACC, the Atlanta Coastal Conference, and that was put to a vote and a requisite number of schools ex-nayed on the school stay. And uh, they uh, said no. So now we're back in a world of, you know, we have kind of four orphans kind of looking to see if they're going to get picked up by the Mountain West or you know, maybe the big 10 is going to expand to 20. Um, Justin, this was the main part I wanted to flag. Um, And this is just my theory. Sometimes I hear some things and sometimes I just think about why ACC would have said, no, we don't have the reasoning. Um, You know, I think uh, it's a question. ACC is in an arms race. Like, why don't you want Cal and Stanford? Those would be some of the more prestigious schools in your conference. Seems kind of odd. And then I thought of something. Uh, California has been pretty progressive on this NIL world. So we've talked about on the show before. We have some new listeners, but for those that don't know, California was the first state to pass uh, any NIL law in the country. That was this law called fair pay to play. And that allowed California athletes to get, um, to be able to advertise their name, image, and likeness from brand deals and third-party endorsement deals. So that's modern-day NIL. All the states did a Not all the states, but most states did really a cut and paste of California's uh, law and, you know, That's the world of NIL we know at this point. Now, um, since then, California has still been pretty aggressive. And California very particularly has been really at the heart of all these NIL and NCAA conversations. The Ed O'Bannon case, uh, uh, the video game case filed uh, once upon a time by UCLA center Ed O'Bannon, who I don't think this is slander. I think it's just true. Kind of was a bust in the NBA and then sued, said I should have been making more money in college. So he's kind of the kind of grandfather of modern day college NIL. The Austin case, the case that kind of fostered in the NIL era, that was also a California case. West Virginia running back sees the treatment that Ed O'Bannon, a UCLA center, got in California. And West Virginia running back, Sean Alston, files in California. Now, we have two lawsuits, two big lawsuits that people maybe, I'm sure we'll dedicate some time on, on a future episode as we have updates on this. The House versus NCAA case, that's the case Uh, currently pending in California, seeking to define what NIL actually means. Name, image, and likeness. Why does that only mean third-party branding deals? Maybe that should mean television rights. Aren't you using my name and my image to make money? Maybe I should get a piece of that. And then there's a case, um, I think it's Hubbard versus NCAA. Maybe I have the name wrong, but that's the Chubba Hubbard case. Uh, The current running back of the Panthers, former Oklahoma State uh, uh, Cowboy. Are the Oklahoma State Cowboys, is that what they are, Justin? I think so. Yeah,
1: yeah. they're the Cowboys. Um,
0: yeah, so he sues, and it's a lawsuit filed by Winston Strawn, uh, the same firm that had the uh, the Austin case once upon a time. Um, but they're basically suing for back pay. Like, you owe us all this money from the past. So Trevor Hubbard's a running back that was pre-NIL looking for, for money uh, that he should have got. So, okay, i laid out a lot of things why like California might be important. I'll give you one more. California has now proposed twice a state statute, That would allow for revenue sharing between the athletes and the schools. It wouldn't just be about brand deals, third party deals, which don't take money away from the school, just a new deal for for athletes. Um, This would take money out of the school's pocket, split the television pie and give a little bit to the athletes. So once upon a time in 2019, when Fair Pay to Play was passed, all these administrators across the country said, well, good for California. Yeah, we're not scheduling any games with California. We're not going to give them any non-conference games. They're going to get an unfair advantage, and more athletes are going to go to other schools. And we hate California. Sucks to suck California. We are. We hate you. And people like myself, I'll give myself a little bit of credit. It's kind of said, well, it kind of sounds like a group boycott, guys. Might want to be a little bit careful by saying that, because that seems not the greatest. We get that message from the NCAA. So everybody calm down, right? But now we're in 2023. That's four years have passed. And we kind of, kind of get into a world that if California continues to be very aggressive on these laws, they keep trying to propose legislation which is of a, a revenue sharing component. Question is, like, are any of these ACC schools worried that a Stanford and a Cal, they they might be a very different school? Maybe there's some avoidance on California schools. Uh, I'm just saying. I'm just saying I don't know. But if I was a lawyer representing the ACC and I was considering those transactions, I'd bring it up. I'm not sure if it's the first point. I'm not sure if it's the second point, but I would certainly say it. Uh, Justin, I don't know. What do you think? Do you think my theory is absolutely batshit crazy or maybe something to it?
1: I don't think it's crazy. Um, that's definitely not the theory that I had, but I wouldn't doubt it. I do know that California has always been the forefront of pushing Uh, college athletics to its new state i mean like you had described with nil they were the first one to really push forward and to say we want uh the students to have their name image and likeness we want them to be able to be paid through these sponsorship deals and now they're bringing forth the uh you know the ability for them to make money in other ways and so And we'll see what happens when it comes to those cases that are pending. Uh, But my theory when it came to the ACC saying no to Stanford and Cal, more had to do with their football programs. I know that you had mentioned that they've had some notable names come from their programs. But when it comes down to it, the football teams themselves, I just don't think were enough for the ACC to bite with all the added travel, with all the added scheduling that has to go on with California schools. I mean, they'll be going three time zones. You know, at least in the Big Ten, they have schools that are in central uh, time and aren't quite that far. I mean, the furthest ACC schools are West, are Louisville, and I guess technically Notre Dame, um, if you count Notre Dame, as an ACC school. And so you have to... You really have thought that Cal to bring those two schools in, they would have had to have a lot of burden on them as a conference. And I just don't think that was something that they wanted to handle because, you know, Stanford and Cal, again, they have been touted as great schools overall, huge educational institutions. I mean, Stanford and Cal are some of the most prestigious, you know, educational Institutions we have. But as far as their money making programs, their basketball and their football, I just don't think the ACC could justify saying, hey, we want to add these schools. We know they're all the way across the country, but they're going to be able to make us so much money. I think that is the difference between what we saw with the Big Ten and UCLA and USC. And then, of course, adding Washington and Oregon as well. Um, those were such big programs in the money-making sports of football and basketball that they were able to justify it. And they have teams that are closer to California and the West coast with Oregon and Washington to be able to, you know, have those games be scheduled. And as far as we know right now, it's not going to be a huge burden, but we're going to see that it might affect athletes down the line.
0: Um. You know, I I think that's probably what
1: you've laid out is probably
0: the main the main argument. It's like, hey, the Big Ten, right? They're now going to be in three different time zones. Like that's the negative to the Big Ten, right? If someone's picking between the two schools, so if the ACC does that, and again, playing devil's advocate, I'm not sure I necessarily buy this. But if the ACC does that, we're going to be like exactly what the Big Ten is doing, except we're not as good of schools as the Big Ten. So let's focus. Let's make our conference, you know, the the athlete friendly conference, not just the money hungry conference. The problem is, and this is, you know, again, plain devil's advocate. I'm just trying to figure out why the ACC shot this down, and we'll see what answers they kind of came up with I'm Sure, at some point. But if you're in an arms race and you see the, you know, Big Ten picking up speed, SEC, everyone chasing the SEC. Big 12 is picking up some speed. Pac-12 is gone. The ACC has to make some move. They can't just stand pat. Um, you know, that's what the Pac-12 did. They just kind of stood pat. they just kind of sitting out. Up- their hands and now they don't exist anymore so if i'm the acc i think you have to take a you know a little bit of an aggressive approach i remember you know we were here talking about this a year ago two years ago when texas and oklahoma left the big 12 what did bob Ballsby, former commissioner of the big 12 do? he came out and said i'm gonna sue espn for tortious interference like i'm going after everybody and i think he even gave some veiled threats over at greg sankey the commissioner of the sec like someone's getting sued here and what happened? Big 12 hunkered down. They brought in a couple more schools. Big 12 seems to be doing okay, right? Uh, certainly they've outlasted uh, the Pac-12 and probably right on fair, uh, I would say a level playing field with the ACC. So yeah, the world where football is king. I don't, I, I think the ACC, I, I don't know what the, the, the issues were, but something interesting here. So uh, may, maybe my California thing is out of whack, but you know, my other part of my brain is like, In NIO world like revenue sharing is is really uh, a when it's not an if and if you had me in the you know conduct detrimental resorts world in casino you know the top of those odds is going to be California so I'm like that has to be factored into the analysis it has to be Uh, maybe it's not the main reason but somewhere somewhere is thinking about it and you know the Big Ten pulled USC and UCLA you know those are schools that have very competitive football programs well USC does, but they both generally have decent basketball programs. So maybe that, maybe that was less of a concern. Um, yeah. I don't know. That's what we're looking at. Um, Justin, anything else to add on this?
1: You're good to go. No, I think that's uh, like you said, I, it could be either of those. It could be both. And I do think that the schools slash conferences that are sort of trying to hold on to that lack of revenue share for as long as possible. I think if they You know, hold on to it too hard, they're going to be left in the dust by either a conference or, you know, states that end up just, you know, citing and saying, hey, uh, they deserve revenue share and we're going to make the schools in our state pay it. Uh, And then the NCAA, if the NCAA is even around by then, uh, but sort of the conferences and the college programs like that will have to be scrambling to figure out what to do. So it'll be interesting to see how college athletic, uh, you know, football and basketball sort of molds in front of us as we move forward. But it's it's really interesting that this huge conference alignment has just showcased that, you know, things are changing very rapidly. And if you're not on the train of it moving, then you're going to be left behind.
0: Agreed. Speaking of uh, changing or else being left behind, ESPN, for, for many, many years, shunned the world of gambling and you know, slowly but surely started to put out more gambling content. And we talked about it from the kind of Barstool perspective last week. Um, but now I think it's a good, good time to talk about it from the ESPN perspective and a little bit from the Penn perspective. So, um, Justin, I know uh, if we haven't said in the podcast, which I think we did, but you're working in a, in a gambling capacity for pickleball. Are you allowed to talk about your job here?
1: Um, I, I can briefly mention it. Uh, I recently was brought on by the professional pickleball association, PPA, um, who is currently running a tournament in Utah. Uh, go ahead and check it out. It's on basically all day. Uh, they're running doubles today, but my capacity has to do with, uh, sports betting and sports betting licensure and, you know, education and stuff like that. So it it's, what I have been doing as far as externships and other jobs that I've held since, well, during law school and since law school. So it's, it's fun. And it's one of my passions is learning about sports betting. And it's a space that has been just evolving over time. And as we see with this ESPN bet thing, uh, the market is just continuing to shift all the time. You have people, you know, entering the market and then you have people leaving the market. And so it's just one of those things that, Sports betting is an exciting topic, which is why I decided to focus my career and my post law uh, law school uh, attention on that topic specifically. So, given uh, that your background is now in sports betting, first of
0: all, I know I've told you offline, but congrats. Uh, It's a very cool role. Cool to see people in conduct get into cool places in sports. Love to see that. Now, you reached out to kind of break down the gambling component of this deal that we didn't really speak about. So, that's the pen side. Uh, and it's the ESPN side. So um, let's start, Justin, on some of the publicly reported or public public filings by Penn after uh, this deal, which kind of gives us a little bit of indication of, of the deal. And then we can talk about the ESPN side. So, Justin, take it from here.
1: Yeah, so um if you search up any sort of pen SEC filings, all or I guess most SEC filings are public and can be found. All you gotta do is Google it. Um, the same thing with uh pen earnings calls. I actually listened in on the Q2 earnings call for pen and was able to get a lot of information about the ESPN bet deal. Um, because you know, when a deal this big with a two million dollar de- or two billion, my bad, with a B two billion dollar deal occurs, you have to sort of reassure your uh, shareholders that this is a deal that is going to make them money. But with the SEC filing, the biggest one that connected Penn to Barstool was a filing that essentially stated that Penn would be taking an $850 million loss as a result of selling uh, back Barstool to Dave Portnoy for the reported $1. Again, it, the, the filings a little bit more, you know, in depth than that, of course, they've got tax write offs and stuff. That is the reason that they have sort of, you know, should first push this filing, um, but also, again, to just file that new transaction about that $850 million loss, which also just highlights how all in Penn is on this new deal with ESPN.
0: Um okay, so I guess the the part is that I wanted to hammer down with you penn is is a, reporting a very large loss with respect to these two transactions. uh, is that an alarming number? I'm not quite sure what to make of it maybe uh may, maybe you have some insights here.
1: yeah, so the sports betting market is huge. um I think worldwide uh betters yearly hit the trillions mark uh as far as you know. Influx of money is concerned, and with Penn here, they are realizing that uh, they have to offload the Barstool brand. Unfortunately for them, they brought on Barstool to be their sportsbook brand, and through you know multiple uh, controversies that they ran into with regulators. Uh, they came to realize that Barstool was not for them. Barstool as a brand and as a company, um, I believe this is what Dave Portnoy said, but they couldn't be in a regulated industry. Uh, and that was true. And it just wasn't a match that was meant to be. But Penn decided that they were going to bite on this ESPN bet venture and partner with the worldwide leader of sports to bring this new sports book to the highest it can be. Um, And if you listen to what Penn is sort of saying when it comes to this, that this $850 million loss is only a byproduct of the revenue that is to be generated from the ESPN deal. Um, They were talking about that the earnings would just be astronomical year to year. And of course, they have projections out to like 2028 about what shareholders could see um, in their earnings. And they highlighted the fact that their fan base and the user uh, base is just going to be huge. I mean, with ESPN, they highlighted that they had 370 million social media followers, 100 million unique monthly visitors to those uh, social media sites, and then the 25 million ESPN Plus subscribers that are already there. And they're hoping that this sort of entrance with ESPN is what can turn them around. And again, make that 850 million, yes, a loss, but in the end it's a necessary loss to be able to, um, you know, cut off the barstool name, bring in ESPN, and then make sure that they have a very competitive sports book in the market.
0: Um, Okay. So let's turn to the other component of this. Like, you know, and me, I'm not a – I mean, I'm a recreational sports better, but I'm not really in the weeds of the sports betting legal side. But, like, you know, from a – a market share component, it's like DraftKings, FanDuel, and then everybody else. And I think what Penn tried to do is let's take Barstool, let's be a close third, right? Let's see as mm-hmm. close as we can get. And certainly, you know, that – it helps if you are – license and you get a license in in more states but you know the barstool brand is a controversial brand and i you know i'm a i'm a consumer of of barstool products i listen to barstool podcasts follow them on social media all that stuff but like I, i see why people you know find them to be controversial and these betting regulators in various states have taken that controversy to kind of slow down um you know their viability in certain states so i think Penn took a gamble that uh you know like let's take this brand and Let's let's see where it can take us in this betting world, but I don't think the returns were quite what Penn expected. I think it was it was a good partnership by and large, but it is no comparison to a brand like ESPN. ESPN is all sports all the time. Barstool's a lot of things, right? Or certainly, Bar- Barstool sports—that's what they're mainly known for. But if you read the comments on <laughs> on any Barstool social media post, it's like remember when barstool was just sports like let's get back to the sports like you know so barstool's kind of moved away from that they're more about content and comedy and um they do a lot of different things but it's not pure sports so espn is pure sports number one they're significantly bigger than barstool number two and then number three they are not mired in controversy there have been edicts that have gone out on espn like do not be political please don't be political and you know that's why you see and we're not going to cover it here but Sage Steele leaving ESPN. She doesn't feel like she can um, exercise her First Amendment rights being an employee of ESPN. But that's what ESPN wants to do. Um, so again, we're not here saying what's good or what's bad. We're just saying ESPN has tried to kind of tone down its personalities, whereas Barstool ramps up their personalities in a very different way. Uh, Dave Portner interviewing uh, you know former President Trump. Now well, that's that's probably going to alarm some people, and maybe you don't want to be associated with that if if you're some states. But um, you know, uh, I guess justin i'll leave this to you here um the viability of espn bet um uh, i guess i can ask you to make a prediction but do you think espn bet
1: is going to be that much more of a success than than barstool sportsbook so do i think it'll be more successful than uh barstool sportsbook yes at a certain point um i You know, in doing my research, you come across two different arguments, you have, you know, the argument against ESPN bet succeeding and then the argument for and the argument against is just that, you know, this has happened before, Um, and I didn't even know some of these sports books existed. Um, There was apparently a sports book that was with Sports Illustrated. There was a sports book associated with Maxim. There was a sports book. Of course, we had the Fox sports book, which is just now shutting down. And then, of course, Penn had Barstool. So we've seen these sort of sports media agreements and partnerships between the sports betting companies as trying to use that branding to elevate their own sports book, and it just not work. However, I do think ESPN is different. I think ESPN is different in the size, the following, uh, the audience, both in age and in, you know, viability for retention. And then also, you know, they are looking, Penn is looking to utilize the personalities of ESPN. And some of those personalities are huge. They have huge social media followings. And again, they have loyal social media followings. I think that was another thing that sort of wasn't really there with any of the other media branded sports books that have come around. And one of those personalities in particular has been extremely involved in the sports betting space before. And that is... A return, you know, topic to the show and hopefully friend of the show, if he's ever heard it, Pat McAfee, who will be joining ESPN here after he is leaving his. Well, I guess not leaving his own show, but he is partnering with ESPN and has stopped his fan partnership. So now he will be free and his show will be free to partner with ESPN bet to elevate that platform even further. Um. Pat McAfee's a friend of the show, but he definitely doesn't listen to the podcast.
0: I can almost guarantee that. Um so yeah, I mean, listen, I'm I'm interested to see what it's like. Uh, it's funny, I think people don't like ESPN. Uh, I mean, I know people don't like ESPN. I, I grew up on ESPN. Certainly, ESPN's different. They're having an a-, a round of layoffs, but me as someone that grew up in the, uh, in the you know the Sports Center anchor era, like I don't know. I think it's a great move for ESPN. Um, you know, it's free money. It's just licensing. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I, and- for all the reasons that we said we don't like the, Barst- the, the Penn deal for Barstool with respect to the non-competes, it's the reason we like the deal for ESPN because they're tapping into that gambling money, which is a huge source of revenue. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how much more time we should spend on it, but I I, I like. I think it's one of these rare win-win-wins. Yes, yeah, so there's parts of the deal I don't love for Barstool, but for Dave Portnoy, no-brainer. You pay $1 to get back 100% of your company, you get to keep the check that Penn wrote you to get 100% of the company. In the first instance, And then you get it back for $1. Um, And I think it's a win for them, as you talked about, a win for Penn, win for ESPN. And I think a win for us as the consumer, right? Like ESPN can tap more into betting now. And then Barstool on the other side, they don't have to worry about the controversies. And I think, you know, that's an era of Barstool, why they became so popular that they leaned into certain things that other sites didn't want to talk about. So I think it's one of these rare, get ready for this, win, 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 win deals, four wins.
1: Yeah. And just as one last note on this topic to keep, you know, expectations tempered, they are, you know, looking to only get to 20% of the market. They see that as their, you know, ultimate win. They're not trying to take over. uh, Well, I mean, I guess they would, if they could take over from FanDuel and DraftKings who collectively have about 70% of the market on lock and they are looking to become the solid third. And, With that as well, with them being the new brand and all the things that go into the sports betting regulation platform, you know, it's going to take time. This is not going to be live anytime soon. Um, I know that they were talking about a Q4 or even Q1 of 2024 launch. So it'll be interesting to see how long. They have to go. I mean, we saw that Fanatics was in a long beta test with theirs and getting their regulators uh or their regulated states in shape and now have launched, I believe, yesterday, actually, um, or around there as they're you know, in live in four states. So it'll take time, but it'll be interesting to see how Penn can mold the ESPN brand and hopefully make a user interface that keeps – uh people, you know, betting at their sports book. Cause in the end, that's the ultimate goal for these companies.
0: Okay. So um let's end here. I mentioned we would do a little bit of James Harden. There's not that much here. Just I want people to be aware of all these various sports law issues and, you know, stories that are very big in a certain sport that lawyers always pay attention, right? So James Harden, um, you know, I think Philadelphia fans are kind of Figuring out what's, trying to, what's going to happen here. Harden, I think, was trying to get a max contract this past summer. He ends up signing a, a one-year deal, an option to return to the Philadelphia 76ers. Paid very handsomely, but it's a one-year deal. There's no long-term security. So Daryl Morey is the GM of the Rockets, or so the GM of the Sixers. He's been with the Rockets. So he, he's been, you know, James Harden for, for a long time, right? right? And the fact that Morey got Harden, you know, convinced him to sign that one-year deal to return to Philly, and not a max deal, I thought it was interesting. I'm like, oh, it's probably Harden buying into Maury and having this type of relationship. They've known each other for years and years and years, and really Harden should credit Maury for a lot of his career, bringing him to Houston, making an entire offense around him. Um, so I don't know. I imagine those guys have a close relationship. And then when things hit the fan with uh, the Nets, where did he go? He went back to Maury. So I imagine, right, this is this is me. thought they were pretty close. Okay. It takes us to uh, this past week. I'm going to read you a quote. You ready for this, Justin? I'm ready. Okay. This one I, I thought was a, thought was a, not a real quote when I first saw it, um, but then I found the video. Here's the quote. Daryl Morey is a liar, and I will never be a part of an organization that he's a part of. Let me say that again. Cola. Daryl Morey is a liar, and I will never be a part of an organization that he's a part of. So- that uh, let me say that again. That was actually in the quote and I watched the video and uh, it's on my social media feed if people want to look for it. That's a quote from James Harden speaking to, I believe, an audience in, in China uh, about a new kind of um spirit deal he had. He's just promoting his new uh, alcohol and he's just out there like, I'm never going to play for an organization again. James Harden for the third time in like less than two years is going nuclear and he's going nuclear to get out. So he did it in Houston. He did it with the Nets, you know, and now he's doing it again with the Sixers. Um, for a guy who I think otherwise is a clear first ballot Hall of Famer, which isn't saying much in in the NBA world because everybody makes the Hall of Fame. This guy is just—I don't know. I guess what we could say this is player empowerment, but no one does this. No one does this for three teams in this short of a period of time. Um, I don't know. That's—I—I I, I put it out here. I'm—you I'm, know—I guess I'm yeah. surprised, but I'm also not surprised.
1: Yeah. It it does speak to one of the things that i've i know i've talked about on this podcast before and also have written about a long time ago i believe when i was talking about kevin durant when he was originally negotiating uh back in brooklyn and he had kind of made this you know comment that he was like i'm not playing for brooklyn anymore i want out they brought him back for one year but i believe that was the year that he was traded to the phoenix suns before the trade deadline well the nba has this culture that the players have way more power than any of the other sports leagues I cannot imagine someone saying this you know as boldly as he did about you know an owner of an NFL team or executives in an NFL franchise and if they do they probably don't last long because no other organizations want to deal with that and unfortunately for James Harden unless, you know, other people also understand why he's mad at uh, Mori, he might have hurt his chances in earning that long-term contract that he's after. So, you know, it's, it's definitely one of those things that you do have a little bit of player empowerment, but at the same time, you know, is he hurting himself with these comments? Is he hurting his chances to make money, to play in the NBA, um you know i guess we'll just have to see but apparently like he said i don't think he'll be playing for the 76ers
0: um the reason that this is a i want to say legal topic calling someone a liar um people might think like is that uh you know slander could that be defamation um justin as we said i mean i want, I just want to give people bullets right things that people could take away where well, this is a very heavy podcast i listen to a lot of um Choose my words wisely here. I listen to a lot of dumb podcasts, and I get a little bit of break from the legalese that we deal with. You know, this is a pretty smart podcast. I hope this so people find their happy medium in terms of listening to dumb podcasts eh, and smart podcasts. Now, I want people to come away with one thing. The main thing that we we taught our listeners over the years to come away with defamation, right? Um, I guess twofold. You need to say actionable facts. You can't if you're just giving your opinion on someone, right? It's not really actionable. You need to say that so that. Daryl Morey, uh, you know, like, for example, it's a hypothetical, so no one can yell at me, uh, got a DUI and killed two people in a DUI incident. Like, that's factual. there's no opinion that's being rendered, there. it's factual assertion. Now, a liar, this might surprise some people, the case law is kind of split exactly what a liar means. Is that an opinion? Is that a factual assertion, right? If you certainly said, if you said, Daryl Morey said that if I signed a one-year deal, he would trade me to the Los Angeles Clippers. That's no longer an opinion. That's a factual assertion. A liar is like, eh, kind of somewhere in the middle. Now, let's assume for purposes of this argument, right? So number one has to be factual assertion. Number two, let's assume that this was a factual assertion, which I'm not really sure it is. James Harden has always got at his back, right? That the truth is an absolute defense. So, you know, I don't know what Daryl Murray told James Harden. I imagine he told him something. Those guys have been very close for a number of years. And all of a sudden, James Harden is now demanding a trade from the organization, demanding a trade from a Daryl Morey organization, which, yes, he has done in the last three years, but with the Rockets were post-Daryl Morey. The Nets was not Daryl Morey, that he actually asked to get traded to a Daryl Morey team. But for James Harden to now kind of turn his back on Daryl Morey, that's something new. So my spidey sense tells me Morey did something to get James Harden this upset. Um, so truth is an absolute defense. We don't know enough here to really shake out. Who's right? Who's wrong? But the uh, the lust spidey sense tells me that Daryl Morey, a uh, little bit of unclean hands here. Obviously, James Harden does as well, but I think that's important.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't think this just came out of nowhere. I do think that there was some sort of event that led to James Harden being extremely disgruntled with the owner. Um, uh, or not the owner. Is it the owner? No, GM. it's GM, GM. GM well I thought it was the owner um but with the GM it's just I don't see how he has. yeah of course it's never going to come out what he said most likely um it's not going to be something that we're ever privy to probably what's going to happen is James Harden is going to get traded somewhere who knows if it's going to be where he wants or if it's going to be some other place that happens to be the one that comes with the best deal so we'll have to see but again yeah nba empowerment with the players uh this is sometimes the things you get which is a little bit messy but uh we'll see if the parties can find some resolution that works for both the 76ers and james harden
0: uh good place to end it good place to end it so um i'm gonna leave with this so uh, i mentioned at the beginning of the podcast your boy is is very uh is a little under the weather and if you hear some background noise that is a my children uh, screaming because they can't play with Daddy. So I got to wrap, got to wrap before kids get mad at me. Um, I love my kids; they're the best. So I got I to gotta do some business here. But before we do this, because your boy has been sick, I've been uh, cooped up. I have been able to sleep, and uh, not not doing the best. But you know, I take my time. I get to watch a lot of documentaries. I got two for you, Justin. Two what to watch for is um, one. I imagine uh, people will know I'm, I'm about to recommend this. Uh, I just watched uh, Hall of Shame, which is the latest in the Untold series, uh, coming on the back of the Johnny Menzel doc and Untold, which everybody in my life was talking about, which that one seems to have perforated the, uh, did I say it right this time? Perforated? Uh, proliferated. <laughs> <laughs> proliferated. Oh, keep this one in. Uh, I'll i will teach myself. <laughs> seems to have proliferated the world of um, sports. Everyone's talking about the Johnny Menzel doc, so watch that if you missed our last episode, but the other one, Walt, Um, whole of shame is kind of the Balco documentary. It's the story of how, um, you know, the, the laboratory behind the Barry bonds uh, steroids case, really what went on behind the scenes, the IRS investigation. Um, I think it's really good. Um, and there's a lot of sports law components, obviously, because there's a federal investigation. There's a 42 count indictment. Um, I think it's really interesting. I don't want to give any spoilers. My other one, Justin. Um, so that one, You got to watch it. Sports Law. It's fantastic. I really do. That's on Netflix On the Untold series. The other one. um, So a couple of years ago, I came on this podcast and Justin, I think you remember this. I'm like, I'm watching Drive to Survive. This is the greatest show of all time. And I fell in love with a sport that I didn't really know anything about. Uh, um, But the way they told the stories, I got to catch up on like, you know, I don't know, 10 years of history on Formula One. And got to see all the storylines and all the champions. And I learned a lot about the sport and I and kind of fell in love with it. But watching Drive to Survive taught you a lot about Formula One. Um, I watched, I came across it on HBO. I guess it's now Max. But uh, I watched the Sean White four-part uh, docuseries. You know, I, I used to snowboard once upon a time. I'm not like a X Games Olympic snowboarding guy. But I know who Sean White is. Everybody knows who Sean White is. That documentary, four, I guess docuseries, four-part docuseries, Um, do I want to admit this on the podcast? I'll admit on the podcast. By episode four, your boy was getting a little bit choked up here. It was pretty emotional. Sean White, very decorated guy, family man. Um, I I will recommend that as high as I've recommended any, anything on this, on this podcast. So Sean White, I don't even know what the name of it is. Just look up Sean White on Max. Uh, uh, it was really good. friend of mine represents Sean White in his, um, we'll say his speaking engagements. So I told him, I'm like, listen, this this documentary is the greatest thing. And yeah. I'm like, he's, you know, other than Michael Jordan, what athlete, what, what athlete was like the top of their sport, but also had the look and the personality of someone that was just like meant to be a flag bearer, like no offense to Wayne Gretzky, the GOAT, like not much of a personality. Barry Bonds, like no one really liked Barry Bonds. And not only that, right? Okay, so MJ was really cool. Everyone wanted to be like Mike, like maybe Kobe, but like. Kobe wasn't like the pinnacle like Jordan was, maybe for a period of time. So maybe Cord- Kobe or MJ. It was a very, very short list. And people forget, Sean White was also a two-sport athlete. He was the top of skateboarding for a while. So now it's like it's a, he's better than I – mean, Deion Sanders was not the top of baseball. Maybe you could say football for a period of time. Bo Jackson was not the top of either sport for any period of time, baseball and football. And you have this guy that's like, you know, this redheaded kid from California – who was the top skateboarder and snowboarder in the world simultaneously while being the most recognizable athlete on the world on an Olympics level. The guy made absolute bank and was an Olympian for 20 years, one of the most decorated athletes of all time. And I don't know anything about snowboarding. This documentary, listen, no spoilers. I thought it was excellent, excellent, excellent. Justin, did I convince you? You're going to watch it.
1: Uh, I actually might. I have been running out of things to uh, watch. I finished uh, Succession on Max. That was the show that I had started and got halfway through season two and then fell off and needed to restart it. So I'd been working with that for a while, but I'll agree with you. Uh, Sean White was one of those athletes that I actually had heard about for the longest time when I was younger, but had never watched snowboarding of any kind Um, until I believe it was either X Games or the Olympics. I can't remember exactly which one. And I finally realized just how much better Sean White was than everybody. Um, and I realized that from the first time he hit the uh, half pipe. It's just incredible because every time they do the half pipe, I believe in X games, and they might do it in the Olympics. They show the height at which the uh, person gets when on their first jump. And he was just astronomically higher than everyone else. And it made no sense to me. Uh, but for my what to watch for mine is a current one and it's ongoing has two episodes out now is hard knocks. I'm a huge football fan. I will always be a football fan. You never, never heard of hard knocks. Well, you know, it, you know, I will say not a Jets fan, Uh never will be a Jets fan, but at the same time I love the hard Knocks series because you get to see the just absolute chaos that goes into some of the, you know, preseason football camps and you also get to see the personalities of the different players. And so there's no spoilers, but I mean, they heavily focus on Aaron Rodgers, the biggest signing uh, this offseason, or I guess biggest trade this offseason. But at the same time, like they also highlight other people that you just fall in love with. It was like the same thing with the quarterback show where people started to fall in love with Kirk Cousins because they had no idea how, you know, much of a family man he was, how, you know, genuine he seemed on the quarterback show. And people just fell in love with him more and more. So that's my what to watch for hard knocks, go watch it. And if you haven't seen earlier seasons, like last year with the lions, go back and watch it. They're all great.
0: Uh, Thank you, Justin. Um, so I think we'll, we'll put a, uh, put a pin in it here. Thank you to everyone for continuing to support Conic detrimental. And yeah, we'll continue to bring you stuff each and every week. If you have suggestions for topics that we should cover, certainly feel free to reach out if you, do want to get involved in Conduct Detrimental in a real way. As the new semester of law well school is starting off, we're trying to look for some uh, more 1Ls, 2Ls, younger the younger generation wants to get involved. We're also open to having some uh, pre-law kids, some college kids, to the extent you're interested. Uh, reach out to Condetrimental at gmail.com. Okay, that'll do it for us here at Conduct Detrimental. And with that, we will see you next week on another episode of Conduct Detrimental.